Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together this morning to worship you through the highest form of worship, which is the study of your word. Father, it is your word that you have given to us, where you have revealed your own thinking to us, that we may understand absolutes, that we may know the truth, and that through your word, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we can be sanctified, we can grow and advance to spiritual maturity and glorify you. Father, we thank you that we live in a nation where we have this freedom. We thank you for our president and for the strong stand that he has taken on many different issues, especially related to foreign policy. Father, we thank you for the way you have protected this nation in the last 18 months, the way you have watched over this nation, foiled plots of terrorism, the way you have uh, given us success on the battlefield in Iraq. We pray that you would continue to give this nation security for no matter how strong our military might be, no matter how advanced our technology, no matter how intense our security, we know that our security only rests in your hands. Father, we continue to pray for those who are in this congregation and from this congregation that are serving overseas and those who have been called up to active duty that are away from home. We pray that you would watch over them, their families, keep them safe. Father, we pray that this might be a tremendous opportunity for them to function as a missionary and to communicate the gospel to those around them, that they might be a sound witness for the truth of your word and the stability that it gives in times of crisis. Father, now as we study your word, we pray you'd help us to understand these things and that we would be responsive to the challenge of your word and the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Last time we began this section starting in verse 14. Verse 14 where Paul finally hits the underlying problem with doubtful things. I think too often we get into this issue of doubtful things and we sort of go in and take our scalpel and we surgically remove chapter 8 from the context and we start focusing just on whether or not we can do certain things because they're not specifically forbidden in the scriptures. They're not uh, necessarily, uh, 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 we're not told to do them, we're not prohibited from practicing them. And so we focus on this one issue of gray areas, and we miss the real punch and the real argument in this section. I think, first of all, one area in which we miss it is that we want to talk about, as usual, you talk about the areas like smoking and drinking and dancing or whatever the nasty nine or terrible two sins are that people come up with that are culturally relevant. And we miss the underlying issue here, and that is that this isn't just a practice that is a cultural taboo. For one thing, it was, they were dealing with a practice that wasn't a cultural taboo. It was a practice that was accepted in Corinth, and that is going to the temple and eating the meat that had been dedicated to the idols, the meat that had been sacrificed to the idols. And so that was culturally ex- acceptable. Christians, some Christians, had a problem with that because they thought that by eating the meat, it automatically meant that you got into all of the the demonism that was associated with it. 
Now, that's a problem that we run into today. There are folks that get this sort of superstitious idea about Christianity where, and you see this all the time, you see certain people who like to wear a cross. They, Not that it, I'm saying there's anything wrong with wearing a cross, but they wear a cross or they have a Bible or they carry a Bible in their car or some other a religious figure, sort of a superstitious talisman. It's a good luck object. You know, if I have my Bible, if I have a cross, if something that somehow God's going to bless me because I've got this religious object. And you even go so far as you get into certain churches that have this, what I call, neo-spiritual warfare doctrine that uh, demons are really lurking behind every little tree and every little bush and the reason you have problems with uh, gluttony or alcoholism or drugs or, or bitterness or any mental attitude sin you can come up with is because you have some sort of demon that's plaguing you. It's not really your fault. It's not really your volition that's causing the problem. It's that there's this spirit of bitterness or spirit of alcohol or spirit of anger or whatever it might be. In other words, let's blame somebody else other than, uh, myself. Well, you get into those churches and you get into this mentality that there's this, and, and in one sense there's a positive thing there, and that is that they they are taking at a at a more literal and real level the impact of the angelic conflict, and that's that's positive. The negative thing is they they make it superstitious and they they take a true doctrine and they recast it within this mystical superstitious kind of framework, and they think that if you go certain places. You do certain things, you buy certain objects that you can, as a believer, you can pick up a demon. And uh, somehow now you're going to have this demon that bothers you in your life, and that's why you have this sense of foreboding or depression or some heavy cloud hanging over your life. And you'll read these anecdotes about people who traveled in the Far East and they picked up a Buddha object or they picked up a, uh, some other object of art and they bring this home, and, and they find out later that it was associated with some sort of idolatrous practice. And, you know, ever since we've, we brought that home, we've had all kinds of bad things happen around the house. You know, the, the uh, kids flunked out of school and got on drugs, and, you know, the marriage just hadn't been what it used to be, and, and uh, the car broke down. And, and they start blaming everything after the fact once they discover that this object had been involved with idolatry. Well, that's sort of the mentality of the weaker brother here, that you go to the temple and you pick up a, a demon or you get automatically get involved with demonism if you just eat the meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul is correcting that. He is correcting that, that there's no real problem there on the one hand. You're not going to worry about buying something, picking something up, and picking up a demon. Why? Because as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been positionally set apart, you are sanctified, and you are protected by the Holy Spirit. So you don't need to worry about that and go around uh, and you know wear garlic around your neck or whatever it might be, whatever your little uh, fetish might be in order to try to protect yourself from this kind of thing. But on the other hand... Paul is saying the real problem in Corinth was that the so-called stronger brother, that is the, the Corinthians who thought they were mature, who thought they had it under control, really weren't. And that's why they're reacting to Paul's admonition that as a mature believer, you need to be completely willing at any day, at any moment, to give up certain things if that practice becomes a problem or is a problem for the spiritual life of, of someone who is less mature and challenges their conscience. And Paul makes the point that even he, as an apostle, doesn't have the right to violate, to offend, to challenge the conscience of a weaker brother. Because if he does that, once you reach this position where you start rationalizing your conscience, even if the value system in your conscience is not right, once you develop a habit pattern, a modus operandi of rationalizing away that norm or standard without going through the correct procedure of relearning or having an exchange with doctrine, if you just if you go about that the wrong way, then what you're doing is you're training your conscience to uh, to be desensitized. And you're training your con you're training yourself 
to rationalize uh, norms and standards so that when you get to the point where they're accurate norms and standards, it just becomes easier to go through that process of rationalization. So there's, there's two extremes you have to avoid here. One is the problem of the weaker, uh, immature believer who thinks that he's going to somehow pick up a demon, and the so-called mature believer who really isn't mature. See, if he was mature, he'd be like Paul and say, okay, no problem, I'm not going to make an issue out of this. But this is the arrogant, carnal Corinthian who really has a problem with idolatry. The, the core problem here is that they haven't made a shift, a complete shift away from their human viewpoint thinking that, they, that informed their, their mentality before they were saved. They've got a situation where it's not human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. It's not idolatry or God. It is idolatry and God. It is human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. It is the problem that we've mentioned several times in the past few weeks of syncretism. It's the problem of accommodationism, where we take the Bible and we try to accommodate it to cultural ideas, cultural beliefs, our own favorite pet theories and views, so that we are not challenged at the very core of our thinking about life by the radical teaching of the Word of God. At least it appears radical to human viewpoint. So Paul hits the nail on the head in verse 14, and he says, Therefore, flee from idolatry. And if you're reading this in context... It seems like it just comes out of left field. Where does this come from? Some people might even say, well, Paul's changing the subject here. But as I've pointed out, there is clear syntactical uh, or syntactical clues in the original Greek showing a shift of subject throughout 1 Corinthians. So he's not. He starts off, therefore, indicating that he is drawing a conclusion based on what he has said previously. And that includes the two examples, the one from the Greek culture of someone who runs a race, who's willing to give up, to sacrifice in his own life at the highest level in order to reach, in order to uh, achieve and to receive a, a perishable crown. And his point is that as believers were pursuing an imperishable crown, therefore we should be even more willing to sacrifice legitimate things so that we can hone and fine-tune our life and our priorities so that we are pursuing that high calling of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, the focus is on a negative example from Israel and the fact that they weren't willing to give up even as, as innocuous a thing as food so that while they're wandering around the wilderness, all they did was complain and gripe about the fact that they didn't have all the wonderful food and all the spices and seasonings and nice delicacies that they enjoyed in Egypt. And so food became an issue in their spiritual life. And ultimately that just showed that spiritually they had not made a shift to, to a full devotion to Yahweh in the Old Testament. They were still uh, following after the old thought systems and some of the old gods. And we pick that up from our understanding of what took place in Numbers. So Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, a term of endearment to these carnal believers, that's Paul operating on impersonal love, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. I'm talking to you because you, you have objectivity, or you should. You've had enough doctrine. I've taught you. Apollos has taught you. Peter's taught you. You ought to have enough doctrine to have objective wisdom. Wisdom only comes from objectivity, and that can only be there as a result of taking in the Word of God. And so he knows that they have enough of a frame of reference from doctrine to evaluate what he is saying and to make application. Application comes under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit based on Bible doctrine. And application is different from each individual. I remember when I was in, in a seminary, we were taking uh, homiletics courses, and of course everybody talks about the importance of making uh, the word uh, applicable. You'd, pastors can't make the ap word applicable. They can teach it clearly, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings the application home. And I had one professor who said, and at the time I thought, this is the most arrogant thing I ever heard in my life. And he said on Saturday nights, and you know they always get this pious tone in their voice, on Saturday nights he would go into the auditorium 
And he would walk the aisle and he would think of somebody who sits here and how can this message be applicable in their life. And then he would think of someone sitting here and how it would be applicable in their life. And he would go through the whole congregation thinking about everybody and how it's applicable. And, you know, he's not omniscient. He isn't in their head. He's not in their life. That's the most arrogant, self-righteous, pious garbage I ever heard. And yet this is standard operating procedure for for most pastors. You teach the Word. You make it as clear and lucid as possible, but it's the Holy Spirit who makes it clear in the life of each individual because there's no way another person understands and can clearly see how it is to be applied in your individual life. That is a matter between you and the Lord and is dependent upon your walk with the Lord and your relationship to God with God the Holy Spirit. But with the Word of God... And under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, we know that we have the absolute objective wisdom of God's thinking in the Word of God, and we can therefore accurately evaluate our own lives, and that is part of what the Scriptures teach about meditation. You don't have that word so heavily in the New Testament, but more often Paul uses the word thinking. And in the Old Testament, it's meditation. It is taking what you have learned in Bible class and reflecting upon it and how it applies in our own thinking and in our own lives. And that means we have to take some time to do that. And that doesn't mean when we're running around um, thinking about it while we're also dodging in and out of traffic on the way to work or home or while we're uh, dodging children on the aisle at the grocery store. But it means you have to set aside a certain amount of time for personal thought and reflection under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit related to the objectivity of God's Word. Notice the key there is the objectivity of God's Word. It's not just sitting back subjectively reflecting on your life. It is taking the Word of God and letting the Holy Spirit use that objectively in self-evaluation. Now, Paul hits the point in verses 16 to 22, and that is that there is no fellowship, there is no assimilation, there's no point of neutrality between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. If you summarize these next six or seven verses, what Paul is saying is it's either human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. It's either religion or it's biblical thinking. It's either the th- thinking of Satan or it's the thinking of God. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground. See, this is one of the greatest errors of modern man is that we've bought into this idea in the modern church that there's some sort of area of neutrality between the thinking of the human viewpoint uh, pagan and the divine viewpoint thinking of Scripture. And Paul is going to completely reject that at this point. So he says in verse 16, The cup of blessing which we bless, we covered this last time, that relates to the cup in the Lord's table, which uh, it is a cup of blessing because it was judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ when the sins of the world were poured out upon him. That's the metaphor that this picks up is that Jesus talked about his judgment on the cross as a cup, and the cup of of a judgment was poured out upon him, and because it was poured out upon him, it was turned from, from, uh, from judgment to blessing for us, because he was judged for our sins, we can then have eternal life, and so the cup at the Lord's table reminds us of all the blessings that have been given to us as a result of his work on the cross. The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Now, to understand that question, we have to understand two key words or phrases there. The second phrase we took first, and that is the phrase blood of Christ. And last time we saw that this is a figure of speech in the Scripture. It is a uh, called metalepsis, or a double metonymy, And the impact of that is basically the blood of Christ stands for his physical death, and the physical death stands for his spiritual death. So when you read the term blood of Christ, this is an idiom in the Scripture for the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ. 
But he had to die physically on the cross, and he did die physically on the cross. So I want to cover several important points on the physical, the doctrine of the physical death of Christ. The doctrine of the physical death in Christ. Because we live in a day today when there are many people who try, liberals, who try to come up with an idea that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He swooned, he passed out. Uh, and in Islam, Islamic theology, which is something we have to become more and more cognizant of, Muslims believe that Jesus did not die on the cross at all. In fact, he didn't even get arrested. It was a substitute. And even though it's not dogmatized, per se, in Islamic theology, the general consensus seems to be that it was really Judas that got crucified on the cross and not Jesus. So therefore, if you are ever trying to communicate the gospel to a Muslim, you have to understand that that's what they're indoctrinated with if they know Islamic teaching at all. But that is what they have they have heard. But the Bible is clear that Jesus died on the cross. He died physically on the cross. He died both spiritually and physically. Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, the term death in each of these verses is a term that includes both physical and spiritual death. It was his spiritual death that was substitutionary. It was his spiritual death that was efficacious for our sins. But these, the term death in each of these passages doesn't exclude the physical death. It includes both dimensions, both the spiritual and the physical death. Specifically, 1 Thess 4.14 emphasizes resurrection, and whenever the context is emphasizing resurrection, the emphasis on the death is also physical. Jesus Christ didn't faint on the cross. He didn't pass out. He didn't swoon. He, he wasn't drugged. This is one idea, that Jesus was, was, uh, was drugged on the cross. In fact, he refused the drug that was customarily offered to those who were being crucified. See, the, the idea in crucifixion was to extend the life of the uh, victim as long as possible, to make him suffer. It was a torturous death, and the purpose was to torture the victim and to uh, stretch it out, if possible, for two or three days before they died. And one of the ways that they did that was they gave them uh, a, a vinegar mixture that included uh, some, some uh, uh, elements that would deaden the pain and ca give them a bit of a of a uh, um, an, an anesthetic. Now, contrary to what is uh, often taught and by liberals and by uh, false religions. The scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ died physically on the cross. The Old Testament teaches this, point number one. The Old Testament predicts that Christ would die physically. This is found in such passages as Isaiah 53, 5 through 10, Psalm 22:16, Daniel 9:26, and Zechariah 12:10. Isaiah 53, 5 through 10, Psalm 22:16. Daniel 9:26 and Zechariah 12:10. The Old Testament predicts a physical suffering and a physical death for the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. This is found in Matthew 4:14, 4, uh, John 4:25 to 26, and John 5:39. Many, many other passages. Jesus fulfilled all of these Old Testament prophecies related to the Messiah. Second, Jesus announced many times during his ministry that he was going to die physically. He announced many times during his ministry that he was going to die physically. Of course, the disciples couldn't, couldn't uh, process that. They were constantly confused. 
But Jesus continuously warned about this reality. John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. John 10, 10 through 11. Matthew 12, 40. Mark 8, 31. In Matthew 17:22 to 23, Jesus said, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised. So he made it clear on many occasions that he would die physically. Third, all of the predictions of his resurrection, both in the Old Testament, for example, in Psalm 16:10. Isaiah 26:19 and Daniel 12:2 all the predictions of his resurrection both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. John 2:19 to 21, Matthew 12:40 and Matthew 17:22 to 23 are based on the fact that he would die physically. Only a dead body can be resurrected. So all the predictions related to resurrection are based on the fact that he would die physically. If you're not dead physically, you can't be raised bodily from the grave. Fourth point, the concept of resurrection never included the idea of resuscitation of an injured, wounded, or almost dead person. I mean, that's just basic definition of the term. Resurrection implies, by its very meaning, that the person is dead totally, finally, irretrievably dead. Not that they have just uh, passed out, not that they have swooned, not that they have uh, died, and yet it's only been a few seconds or a few minutes, and so CPR can, can revive them. The concept of resurrection indicates that the person is a completely, totally, and irretrievably dead physically. And we have to assume that the writers of Scripture that the Roman guards, that the Jewish authorities all were versed enough in spotting a dead person that they could tell that he had died physically. Now, this isn't so often the case today. We live in a world where we're pretty much isolated from basic realities in life. If you go back to our grandparents' or great-grandparents' generation, those uh, who were living in, let's say, a pre-World War II or pre-Depression era, it was very common in those families that in many families where you were born and you died in the same bed. And you might live 50 or 60 years in between, but you were born and you died in the same bed, and birth took place in the home, and death took place in the home. It wasn't isolated at a, at a nursing home or at the hospital, but this was something that everyone was familiar with so that when a uh, someone died, they knew what it looked like. They were familiar with it. Now, people today never see anybody die, so they're not familiar with it at all. But that wasn't the case, except for perhaps the last hundred years or so. So they understood what physical death looked like and what its characteristics were. Fifth point, the nature and extent of Jesus' injuries indicate that he must have died physically. If you look at the description in the Gospels, which are the only eyewitness accounts, it is clear that he must have died physically because of the nature and extent of his injuries. We have to realize that he had no sleep the night before. He had stayed up all night, pulled an all-nighter praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples, and then early that morning he was arrested and went through six different trials, so he would be physically exhausted. After that, he was beaten several times. He was whipped and scourged, and he f collapsed physically on the way to the crucifixion. This was a an incredible form of death, an incredibly painful, torturous form of death, and the torture that preceded the death was excruciating. And when you've gone through that, after you've had very little sleep, then you're, you're hitting it at, at a real at a low point, and so to survive all of that would be almost impossible. Sixth, the nature of the crucifixion would assure death. The nature of the crucifixion itself would assure death. Jesus was put on the cross about 9 o'clock in the morning, according to Mark 15:25, and he remained on the cross until just before sunset. So he was up on the cross for about 8 to eight and a half hours. 
though he, uh, uh, there was some minor bleeding, there was very little loss of blood during that time. That was the nature of crucifixion, that there would be very little loss of blood. Because they didn't want you to bleed to death up there, they wanted you to stay alive for two or three days. Furthermore, it was an excruciating death because it was designed to, for the victim to suffocate. As he hung there on the cross, it put pressure on his, uh, on his diaphragm. All of the organs in his abdomen would be pressing up against the, the uh, diaphragm, and the victim would have to pull himself up. Remember, he's got a nail through each wrist, and he would have to pull himself up, which would be an excruciating excruciatingly painful in order to breathe, and eventually he just wouldn't have the strength or the ability to pull himself up, and then he would uh, suffocate. So this was the standard procedure in crucifixion. Seventh point, the piercing of Jesus' side with a spear. John tells us that blood and water came out, which is actually blood and serum. That only happens after the victim has died physically. Because of the uh, nature of biology, once the person dies, especially in a crucifixion, the blood settles out above the diaphragm and separates uh, into uh, blood and into serum, into, uh, into lymph, actually, that is clear. And so to the non-medical, non-technical observer, it would look, when it came out, as blood and water, so that when the Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side with the spear, then that uh, punctured the diaphragm, and this separated blood and serum then came out. That is clear proof, medical proof, that Jesus had already died at that point. Furthermore, point number eight, Jesus said that he was in the act of dying or process of dying when he declared, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. At that point, Jesus breathed his last, according to Luke 23:46. John says, Jesus gave up his spirit in John 19:30, and his death cry was heard by those who stood by. They knew what had happened, they observed it, and they realized what the point of death was. So Jesus did not die from the crucifixion, actually, he willed his own death after he had completed, to tell us die, completed the payment for our sins. Furthermore, point number nine, the Roman soldiers who were the executioners were experienced executioners, and they knew what it looked like for the victim to die. They were accustomed to crucifixion and death, and so they weren't going to be uh, taken by surprise. The common practice in order to speed up the death if they were in a hurry was to break the victim's legs and that way he could no longer push himself up to breathe and he would suffocate to death. When it came time to break his the legs of the Lord, they did not do so because they saw that he was clearly dead physically. He had died. John 19.33 makes that point. Furthermore, Pilate made sure Jesus was dead before he gave the corpse to Joseph. Apparently, the unbelievers recognized Jesus' claims to resurrection better than the disciples did. And so both the Jewish authorities, what Paul is saying here is the cup of blessing which represents the death of Christ, the new covenant which he established on the cross, which we bless, is it not the participation of the death of Christ. Now, if we translate it that way, get, we catch a little more of the impact in that, and that is that we share, we participate in, we are partners in the death of Christ. Now, how do we become a sharer, a participator in, or a partner in the death of Christ? This is clear from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, where Paul says that, it, Do you not know that you have died with Christ? At the instant of our salvation, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
This is the doctrine called positional truth. We are identified with him, placed in him by means of the Holy Spirit, and that is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or more correctly, the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who identifies us positionally with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So what the thrust of Paul's argument here is that don't you understand that a break has occurred between who you were as an unbeliever and who you are now? That at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, that you were severed from that old life as an unregenerate unbeliever, as a pagan who could only operate on cosmic thinking, and now you have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You are a partner, a participator in, a sharer in the death of Christ. And then he goes on and asks the next question, two rhetorical questions here in order to emphasize the doctrine. The first focuses on the cup, the second on the bread. He said, the bread which we break. Now, the bread represents the body of Christ. It was not broken. There is no symbolic significance to breaking. It is simply that when Jesus took that, that unleavened bread at the, Lord, at the Passover meal the night before he went to the cross in order to get 12 pieces to distribute it to the disciples, it had to be broken. But his, the bones in his body weren't broken. It is simply metaphor for the physical suffering that he went through on the cross. The bread which we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And see, with the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, in our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are placed into the body of Christ. This is foreshadowing in the this epistle. These, this verse foreshadows exactly where uh, Paul is going in his argument. In chapter 11, the subject is the Lord's table. And in chapter 12, the subject is spiritual gifts. Actually, chapters 12 through 14, spiritual gifts relate to our role and function in the body of Christ. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, are we not many? Yet we are one in Christ. There is a unity in Christ. The Christian life is not a life that is a life of isolation. We're not atomists. We're not just a bunch of believers separated out there as individual drops of water all scattered, but there is an intrinsic unity that is based upon this sharing, this participation in the death of Christ on the cross and our positional identification with him that we are all one in the body of Christ. This is exactly where Paul goes in his application in verse 17. He says in terms of explanation for, this is the uh, exegetical use of, of the particle hati, indicating that Paul is now going to give further explanation of what he has said in verse 16. He says, for we, many. Notice you have the word though in your text is in italics. That indicates it's not in the uh, original Greek, but it's been inserted by the writers or the translators in order to give some uh, sense of the thought flow here as it's brought over into English. Paul is, is, seems to be very excited here. He leaves out several words. And actually, in the Greek, it reads, For we many are one bread and one body. See, the emphasis here is on the unity of the body of Christ, that we are all one. There is a, there is a, a mutual relationship in the body of Christ based on our mutual identification with Christ in his death on the cross. We, though many, there are thousands and thousands and uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of believers, uh, and actually maybe even billions if you go back and include every believer throughout the church age, uh, alive or dead, we are all one in Christ. We're one bread, one body. They, they, the bread represents the body. And so Paul is saying we all partake of that one bread. We all have that one thing in common. And we are all participants of that. We all partake of that one bread. And the emphasis here is on the fact that we are sharers in what Christ did on the cross. So there is this mutual interdependency positionally of all believers 
and we are all dependent upon Christ. Verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. So now he is going to take it back to application to what was covered in verses 1 through 13. Go back and look at Israel. Remember, we were told in in verse uh, <coughs> 6, Now these things became our tupas, our types, our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So here he goes to the negative example of Israel. He says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Notice Israel and in terms of their physical existence and their carnality are those who and he looks back to the uh, ritual practices in the temple he says are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar so here he uses the word koinonia again that they all are sharers in the altar he goes back to the ritual and says look at the ritual the priests would come out and they would sacrifice the animal, and then they would share in eating the meal afterwards, indicating that they all benefited equally from the sacrifice. Uh, if you want to look at a reference on this, we don't have time to look there this morning, but you might want to look at Leviticus 7.6 and 7.15 to describe where we see the illustration of the Jews all participating in the benefits of the sacrifice. This was an identification with the sacrifice and taught positional truth. Now in 1 Corinthians 10.18, Paul says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? The form of the question implies a positive answer. Now in idolatry, in idolatry as the the priests in the idolatrous system would make their sacrifice, and then whoever ate of the sacrifice would be partaking of what belonged to the god. That was the picture. The sacrifice belongs to this idol, belongs to this demon god or goddess, and so when they ate that, then they would be participating in what belonged to that god or goddess, and it was a symbol of their identification and association with that particular god or goddess. It was a physical act of dependence upon that god, that I am sustained by that which belongs to the god and what this god has provided for me. The same picture is true of the Old Testament sacrifices. There it was a physical symbol of the fact that the people were dependent upon God. They were, God was the one who provided the uh, sustenance, the nourishment. God owned the animal that was sacrificed, and it was a communal meal. God, what they, It was a picture of the believer sitting down and eating with God. Eating in ritual was often a picture of communion, of fellowship, with God. Now Paul goes on to say in verse 19, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to an idol is anything? And the answer that's expected of this question is no. An idol is nothing. It's just a block of wood or a block of stone or metal, but there's nothing really there. So on the other hand, you have to get away from this superstitious mentality that just because you, if you go where there's a real God and sit down like the Jews did with the real God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you sit down and you eat a meal, there's reality there. But if you go into a pagan temple, there's no reality there. However, he says, there is something going on. It's not just a simple block of wood. There is an underlying dynamic that you need to watch out for that is dangerous. Skip down to verse 20. Rather, he says, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And here he brings in the spiritual dimension that this isn't just even though it's just a block of wood and even though there's, uh, it's just a block of stone and in and of itself there's nothing there, there is a spiritual dimension to idolatry and they're actually sacrificing to demons and not to God. And therefore, you should not have any fellowship or partnership with demons. Now notice, uh, 
He's already said it's okay to eat the meat, and he's going to come back later on and say it's okay to eat the meat because as a believer you know there's no reality there. But what happens is if you go so far as to eat the meat and you haven't met, made a mental break in your thinking as a believer where you have separated yourself mentally from the pagan systems of thought surrounding you, then what's going to happen is if you have just, instead of making a break between uh, human viewpoint and divine viewpoint, if you have just assimilated Christianity onto whatever you held before, if you're, you're in an accommodationist mode, then what's going to happen is you're going to go back and you're going to eat that meat sacrificed to idols, and then you're going to go a step further. And it's that step further that's the problem. And next thing you know, you're going to get involved with the ritual sacrifice. You're going to get involved with the ritual uh, fornication, the ritual prostitution. And you're going to be right back in idolatry again. And this is exactly what happens in all kinds of religious systems, from the uh, systems of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, many Protestant systems where they haven't completely expunged a lot of ritualistic mentality, what happens is they just they, they move from a biblical uh, practice right into uh, paganism and idolatry, either overtly or or they do it uh, in a much more subtle mental fashion. For example, you have, as we've been studying on Wednesday nights in our study on Genesis chapter one. There are many uh, believers who think that they've satisfied the problems that modern science has raised in terms of the age of the universe, the age of the earth, uh, fossils, dinosaurs, uh, primitive men. They believe in something called uh, theistic evolution, which just means God somewhere in the background, way, way in the background. But God's in the background, and he just sort of uses evolution to, to move things along. In other words, there's, for them, they've accepted everything that modern science says is absolute fact, and they just kind of stick God in there somewhere just to sort of uh, assuage their own conscience. And then, on the other hand, you have people such as progressive creationists, day-age theorists. They, they try to take the Bible a little, emphasis on little, little more seriously and have the gods a little more involved for them, but they still have bought into the pagan presuppositions that underlie all Darwinism and all modern conceptions of evolution. And you can't, you can't merge these two. That's a, this is a great application from this passage. You have to operate on a biblical way of thinking, a biblical view of ultimate reality, a biblical view of ethics, a biblical view of everything from your starting point, and metaphysics and creation and origins always, always come. Well, if you have a bad view there, it's going to rear its ugly head here or there along the way at some point. There has to be a complete and total break. If not, once you go back to these things, then you're just going to suck up a lot of human viewpoint because it appeals to your sin nature and you haven't made the break yet. So Paul says there is a reality, though, behind these demons. Even though the idols are nothing, there is a reality. And if you're on negative volition and you are not making that break and you're in carnality, then you can start picking up doctrines of demons. This is demon influence. This isn't demon possession. This is demon influence, and you're going to pick up a lot of cosmic thinking that is going to destroy your spiritual advance. This was the same problem the Jews had in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy 32:17, we're told that the uh, uh, Gentiles sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And the Jews followed the Gentiles in those practices. And there both the Old and New Testament affirm that there is a demonic reality behind idolatry. Uh, furthermore, there's an, 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 in Deuteronomy 32:21, there is the statement they have that God says they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy uh, by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. God hates idolatry, and again and again and again in the Old Testament, whenever you read through King. And you read, such and such was a king, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
And what does the text say comprised evil? It's always he kept the people following the gods, uh, following the Baals and the Asherah. It's always, the evil is always defined as idolatry. The evil is not defined as immorality. It's not defined as licentiousness. It's not defined as, as a, a society where there is a, a corrupt government. It's not defined as a society where there is um, there's a lot of criminality. It is always defined in terms of idolatry. So God hates idolatry because idolatry is always representative of Satan's attempts to counterfeit the truth of God's Word and to provide people with a religious substitute. Psalm 106.35 says, They mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. So the reality is that what underlies every religious system, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, what underlies every single religious system is demonism. Uh, Satan is behind every religious system. Religion is Satan's greatest tool to deceive and distract mankind. So Paul goes on to say in verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. These are mutually exclusive. You can't take in doctrine and, on the other hand, absorb the human viewpoint thinking of the world. You can't partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. This, they are mutually exclusive and antithetical. And if you are involved in syncretism, compromise, mental compromise, accommodationist theology, then you will never make it in spiritual life. In fact, you are in rank carnality all the time because of your heresy. That's the point that we're learning in First John and Second John, that fellowship isn't just a matter of not sinning. Fellowship is also a matter of having right doctrine in relationship to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have every single I dotted and every single T crossed, but you have to have all the basics in place. You have to believe in a pre-incarnate eternal Jesus Christ. You have to believe in the virgin conception and birth. You have to understand the impeccability of Christ. You have to understand his substitutionary uh, spiritual atonement on the cross. You have to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ and his literal second coming to establish his kingdom. If you don't believe those basics about the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can't be in fellowship because you are operating on heresy, and that's the whole point of First and Second John. Now, and as Paul wraps this up, he says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And his point is simply in that those last two questions is a figure of speech indicating, do you think that you're greater than the Lord and know more about the Lord and that somehow you're smart enough to be able to avoid damage to your spiritual life through your accommodationist uh, postmodern tolerance mentality? And the answer, of course, is no. Well, you have to stick with the Scriptures. Now, as we wrap up this morning, a few points on religion as Satan's greatest tool to destroy Christianity. First of all, point number one, Christianity and religion are antithetical. Christianity is a relationship with God based on the work of Christ. Religion is the work of man based on his own morality or ritual. Christianity and religion are antithetical. Christianity is based on relationship through the work of Christ. Religion is based on ritual or works based on human morality. In Christianity, God is impressed with the work of Christ. In religion, man tries to impress God with his own works. Point number two. Christianity is an eternal relationship with God based on personal faith in Christ. In religion, man seeks the approval of God through his good works and his own merit. Point number three, 
Religion reflects Satan's thinking. Satan is arrogant. Satan put all the emphasis on who he was and his own personal abilities and talent. Therefore, all religious systems ultimately come down to an emphasis on who the individual is and his own abilities and his own talents. As part of his promotion of religion, point number four, as part of his promotion of religion, Satan has devised a number of counterfeits. Satan has devised a number of counterfeits. Remember, Satan is the greatest counterfeiter in all of human history. We don't be fooled by all of the modern uh, approaches to uh, Satan, which emphasize him as something that is evil, something that's horrible, something that's uh, terrible, because Satan always wants to approach as an angel of light. First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, tells us that he appears as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. He is a tremendous counterfeiter. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 13 through 15. He has false apostles, deceitful workers who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. That is, they are counterfeits. So there are nine counterfeits in Satan's system. First of all, he has a counterfeit gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, and Galatians 6, 1 through 8. He has a counterfeit gospel. Satan attempts to counterfeit the gospel through a works-oriented system, whether it's Islam, whether it's some sort of Eastern religion. Ultimately, it all boils down to how good the person is and how moral they are. Second, Satan has counterfeit ministers. This I just mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15. He has counterfeit ministers. Third, in our passage in 1 Corinthians 10, he has a counterfeit communion table, a counterfeit communion table which is associated with idolatry. Fourth, he has counterfeit doctrine, counterfeit teaching called doctrines of demons in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 1, doctrines of demons. He has a counterfeit spirituality. This always uh, sidetracks most believers who think spirituality is morality or ritual. Galatians 3, 1 through 3, a counterfeit spirituality. Sixth, he has a counterfeit system of righteousness. Matthew 19, 16 to 28. He has a counterfeit system of righteousness that man on his own can impress God. Seventh, he has counterfeit gods. These are the idols, Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. He has a counterfeit system of power through pseudo-miracles, and he can uh, counterfeit miracles and counterfeit healing, Second Thessalonians 2, 8 through 10. And he has a counterfeit way of life, Matthew 23, 13 through 26. So it is through religion and through these counterfeits that Satan seeks to distract mankind. And I think that the greatest religious counterfeit that Satan has ever developed is Islam. And it is uh, going to be the issue, I think, for the rest of our lives with militant Islam. And while I think that there is a certain amount of prudence on the part of government powers who try to... Uh, ameliorate the situation, talk about the fact that Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, don't, be, don't succumb to that. Don't be fooled by it. It is a militant religion, has been since day one, and it is Satan's greatest evil foisted on mankind. And while we have to recognize that it is an evil and we have to hate it as an evil system, we must also have a heart and desire for evangelism to those who have been deceived by it, and that is very difficult because of the brainwashing that they go through uh, in their religious system. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the truth of it. Father, we pray that you would help us to apply these things and to make sure that our thinking is radically separated from uh, human viewpoint. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. 
during that time on the cross from 12 noon to 3 p.m., all the sins of mankind, including every single sin that each one of us will com- has committed or will ever commit, these were poured out, and Jesus Christ was judged for those sins. Therefore, the issue is no longer sin. The issue is faith in Christ. The issue for salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day. The issue for condemnation is that you have not believed. John 3:18 says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So right now, right where you sit, you can make your salvation secure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus died for you. The instant you believe God the Father and his omniscience knows that, you're regenerated, you receive eternal life, and you can never lose that. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all that we have studied today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.